0: of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. And I'm proud to call it home. This is my country, and I'll never stand alone. It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Courtney. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy.
1: And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I hope all of you remembered to set your clocks back one hour last night um, so that you woke up to a beautiful, bright, sunny morning, um, and while we're all enjoying this gorgeous November 4th, um, it's time for the rain to come. I'm starting to get a little nervous. So, in the meantime, we all know there are plenty of folks out there trying to inflame your passions. A current president, an ex-president, um, uh, a former presidential candidate, a a bunch of maybe-will-be presidential candidates. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. And the numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, and then how to prioritize the necessary changes. And in the numbers this week, four days until the midterms. Fifty percent, that's the malleable middle in the American electorate influenced by talking points and media buzz. You'll hear more about that in my conversation with the National Review's David French. 36,000 to 50,000, that's the estimated number of babies born in the United States every year whose mothers have heard the siren call of birth tourism. So we're four days away from that midterm. And in almost every state, There are reports of a surge in early voting. Some states have mail-in ballots. Uh, Oregon and Washington do only mail-in. California, we are about 75% mail-in ballot. 13 million out of California's 19 million voters opt for a mail-in ballot. In Texas, they are reporting as much as a 500% increase in early voting over the 2014 midterms. And that's a state that does early voting mainly in person. It reflects younger voter participation. Yay. If the, You kids are going to inherit this mess we've created. And so, yes, you should get involved and start to educate yourselves um, instead of just following the line ahead of you. <coughs> so... Here in California, I have to laugh. Yesterday, I was still getting circulars from candidates um, who are on the ballot um, who I've never heard from before. And four days before the election, in a state where three-quarters of the ballots are mailed in, they are thinking that's the appropriate moment to drop their uh, campaign literature. Um, so, one of the things that I hope will come out of the aftermath and the after action report on the twenty eighteen midterms is a discussion of of this changing dynamic in voting that yes, we have to have a specific date the first Tuesday in November when we count all the ballots, but that the voting has been going on for a number of weeks, so those so-called October surprises have a diminished impact because so many people, have, and especially this year, so many people have already made up their minds. And we can tell here in the county there were 700, in Santa Clara County I believe there were about 700,000 mail-in ballots. And I know in my own case, I actually called the post office to make sure that the box where I had dropped my ballot was a live box because I kept looking and I didn't see that my ballot had been counted. So it took over a week from the time I put the ballot into the mailbox before I got could see um, at the registrar of voters that the ballot had been received and counted. Um, But you have to make sure not just that you mailed your ballot in time, but that you are uh, checking to make sure it's been received. If you're still holding on to that mail-in ballot and you know who you are, then if you don't fill it out today and put it in the mail by Tuesday morning, it has to be postmarked by Tuesday if you want it to be counted. Um then you can actually walk into any polling place and hand them your completed ballot and it will be counted On if you hand it in on Tuesday. The uh, better thing to do if you haven't voted yet is go to an early voting polling place. Uh, you can go to the Registrar of Voters. There are a number of them around the county. Go to the Registrar's site and they will show you where they are. Um, but if you haven't voted yet, you need to um, you, you you need to make sure that you either vote to, over the weekend, or that your mail-in ballot is postmarked by Tuesday, November sixth. This is the most important election in California, probably in your lifetime, because the next governor is going to change the trajectory of this state. Dramatically, so this is not an election that you want to sit out. And if you're not sure, if you're still not decided about after the barrage of of information, etc., uh, you're not sure about the candidates. You're not sure about how to vote on the propositions. You're not sure you understand what the meaning of the propositions is. Um, then. I'd suggest that you you can do a couple of things you can go to reimagineamerica.org, dot org and I've posted a synopsis of all of the propositions um an explanation of what's what they do um i've not what the impact of them is and you know I didn't tell you how I voted, but you could probably guess um And if you go to reimagineamerica.org and go to the radio page, there is a um, combined podcast of the last two shows that cover all the propositions and the major constitutional offices. And if that's of of help to you, that's an available resource. So I'm not going to advocate about how to vote. I'm just going to tell you, you need to vote. There is no excuse in this election not to vote. And again, you know who you are, and I can nag. And so how do I think it's going to play out across the state and the nation? Um, I don't believe that you can tell anything by the uh, early returns by party registration. Okay, and I don't believe the polls, This election is going to be very, very close. And so if you appreciate your congressman, if you appreciate Jeff Denham, for instance, you need to make sure you vote because this election is going to be razor thin at the margin. And so does early voting really indicate voter enthusiasm? I'm not so sure. Sure. It may actually tell us that more people made up their minds earlier. And we'll be back in just a minute with David French from the National Review to talk exactly about talking points and how they impact voter behavior.
0: You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy.
1: We are privileged to have as a guest today, David French. Mr. French is a senior writer for the National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, an attorney who concentrates his practice in constitutional law and the law of armed conflict, and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He is the author or and co-author of several books, including most recently the number one New York Times bestseller, The Rise of ISIS, A Threat We Cannot Ignore. David is a former major in the United States Army Reserve. Thank you for your service. He was awarded the Bronze Star for his service in Operation Iraqi Freedom. David French will be a guest of the Liberty Forum of Silicon Valley on Tuesday, November the 13th, explaining how the First Amendment can keep the United States from disintegrating. An intriguing topic for sure. For tickets and information, go to liberty-forum.us. And if you are driving at the moment, you can Google Liberty Forum of Mountain View. David, thanks so much for taking time to talk with our listening audience this morning.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much.
1: Well, it's our pleasure. And you know, we are less than a week away from that midterm election, and we're bombarded. I don't know about you in Tennessee, but out here in California, we are bombarded by talking points. Those party-prescribed, oft-repeated phrases and speeches that are used to manipulate usually a willfully gullible electorate. <laughs> I mean, what do you think about pre-existing conditions? Are they really at stake? <laughs> I mean, There are 10 million people on Obamacare, and that's the focus of that argument. And yet, if you're a voter who has corporate insurance or Medicare, they're scaring the heck out of you.
2: Well, you know, it's a combination of things. And one of them is that really the people who pay close attention to politics in this country, it's a pretty small subculture. So what you end up having is people who are paying very uh, close attention to politics watch news, listen to politicians, and they just roll their eyes at how simple and simplistic everything is. But if you're a politician, you're going to have media consultants who are going to be telling a pretty simple message in your ear all the time. You have to repeat something consistently, persistently, you've just got to, and it's got to be simple for anybody to understand it. You're going to be dealing with voters who are going to have maybe one or two thoughts in their mind about policy and politics when they go to the polls. What do you want that one or two thoughts to be? And then you're also dealing with a public that's relatively apathetic in many ways. I mean, it sounds weird to say that at the height of the Trump era when, you know, politics seems to be dominating people's minds, but there's this really interesting recent poll done showing that essentially those people who really pay close attention to to politics are clustered at the wings of the GOP and the Democratic Party, that the majority of Americans really don't engage all that much. And so how do you get them to engage? And one of the ways that politicians get them to engage is through hyperbole, through exaggeration, through fear. I mean, this is a very, very old tactic. So if you're talking to somebody and you say, okay, well, if the Republicans have their way and you're on the individual market, it might be harder to find a plan that covers pre-existing conditions. That's one thing that's going to motivate very few people. But if you say you may lose coverage for pre-existing conditions if the Republicans win, well, then that cuts through the noise, even though for the vast, vast majority of people listening, that's not an issue in this election at all. But that cuts through the noise. And so what ends up happening is these politicians constantly have an incentive to push the rhetoric to greater and greater extremes, even when the underlying issue doesn't really merit it. It's still that's how you break through apathy.
1: But that doesn't create a very informed electorate. And the result of that is that we keep reelecting the same people who use the same scare messages every two, four (laughs) or six years And never, ever accomplish anything. Immigration is a really good example of that. I mean, we've got an immigration problem that is really underlying an economic problem that is swallowing the American middle class. But it's a better fight word than it is a soluble problem. They wouldn't get credit, they feel, for solving the problem.
2: Well, you know, I think what you we do have uh, the political culture is creating a misinformed electorate. Mm hmm where, you know, you've got people who are excessively alarmed about some things and not sufficiently alarmed about other things. But I think the bottom line as to why a lot of things are not getting done is we just have a polarized electorate. So, you know, even if we were properly informed, I'm not so sure that we would be agreeing on an awful lot of things these days. I mean, There's a lot of research showing that Americans just don't like the other side very much. Um, It's this concept that's called negative polarization. It says, I'm, say, a Republican, not because I love Republican ideas, but because I really dislike Democrats. And I'm a Democrat, not because I love Democratic ideas, but I really dislike Republicans. And and this negative polarization means that, you know, agreement is extraordinarily difficult to come by on substantive issues because there's just a lot of disagreement and a lot of distrust around them. So that's not necessarily a new problem. I mean...
1: No, it is. Uh, was
2: it Churchill who said that uh, Americans will do the right thing only after they've tried every other thing? <laughs>
1: I believe that is the quote. And you know what, in my entire political awareness, the argument around a woman's right to choose, this fear tactic that somehow um women are purely a uterus, has been uh, used every two years as though we're some automatons who just vote on that single issue, which may explain. I, I get the statistics that you're quoting. But on the other hand, and you touched in it uh, on it a little bit in your piece this week about the Democrats having a rich white progressive problem, 50 percent of the electorate does not align with one party or another. And in that, you know what happens to those people um, they get swallowed up in these um, right. in these talking points, and that's how they're forced to choose sides
2: well, you know we've got a two party system. Uh, trust me, as somebody who looked hard at the alternatives this last uh, presidential election, you know th- it is very, very difficult to break to the two party system and then what you have is a dynamic where the people who control the, uh, the mechanisms, the levers of power, and the, and the voters who select the candidates for, for each party tend to be these highly energized base voters at the wings of both parties. And so the problem, one of the interesting things about sort of the so-called, you know, the, the, the center-right or the center-left or the sort of moderate-middle or the mushy-middle or whatever you want to call it, it's hard to energize people around moderation, <laughs> Uh, people tend to be energized more by the more extreme ideas, at least in, in our contemporary American politics. And I do think that there is a market in American politics for a third option. I do think it exists. The problem is just getting, is getting from A to B. How does that third option materialize? How does another alternative materialize? And it turns out that it's a lot harder to make it happen than people realize. But at the same time, it's also true that a lot of people are sort of more disengaged, more machine, more moderate, so to speak. They're not necessarily really all that moderate or all that much in the middle. They're just not quite sure what they believe on key issues. So they get heavily influenced by whoever's in front of them speaking. And that's why I think that's one of the reasons why we're getting more polarized, because these parties are putting out more polarizing candidates and that's drawing people out of that middle area. That's drawing people out of that big group in the middle that Americans used to think about. And now, instead of looking like sort of like this bell curve, it looks more like a U-shaped curve where Americans are clustering more on the edges and not so much in that middle.
1: We'll be back in just a moment with a little bit more about the U-shaped curve and how the mainstream media contributes to the current political climate.
0: Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer.
1: And we're back. With our guest David French to talk a little more about the U-shaped curve of uh, voter apathy and uh, how talking points, usually misleading, become the truth of the day with the help of the mainstream media. Okay, let's talk about 2016. In 2016, it turns out that barely 50% of registered voters even went to the polls. So even folks who are in that mushy middle had to be drug kicking and <laughs> screaming. So if we had, if we could conceive of a really attractive third party option, what you know, but that option would have to do two things. That option would have to first be an attractive option able to attract money. That option would also right, right. would also have to do something really really dangerous. Tell voters the truth. That if we don't reform Social Security and Medicare, they're going to go bankrupt, Yeah. for example. Yeah. And the thing is,
2: then you're going to have somebody on the other side of them saying, no, that's not true. We can fix it. We can reform it without any real pain. It's, you know, bringing up the debt bomb, the entitlement issue. You're bringing up one of the thorniest problems in all of American politics, and it's one that I fear that we really just won't get serious about until there's a crisis looming in front of us. But yeah, you know, there has been a problem with voter apathy in the United States for a really long time, and I've actually gotten to the point where I've mixed feelings about it, because the people who are not voting happen to be, in many instances, among the most or the least civically interested and engaged segment of the population which means that they're not tracking the issues, they're not tracking the candidates, they're even less well-informed than, say, your likely voter profile. And so a lot of those folks, I don't know what they believe. And when it comes to politics, they might not even know what they believe. They're busy with other things. They do other things. They care about other things. And, you know, part of me thinks, well, you know, it would be great if we had more participation. But, you know, America is working out well enough for them that they're kind of content where they are, you know, I'm not terribly upset that they're not voting. Uh, it's just that we have a much larger problem of a lack of civic literacy, a lack of civic education, a lack of civic engagement. And all of those things add together to a political culture, which gets really simplistic really fast. It gets very hyperbolic really fast. It preys on fear as a motivator. And there's just simply not great solutions right now
1: and those are the issues that at least for me and i think for you too are the pressing issues of you know people who are tuned out and will be tuned out until it becomes too late i mean that's a way the prescription of apathy is a way to lose our franchise to a different political model
2: yeah i mean apathy you know what happens i think you're right that what happens with uh, with apathy is that it sort of can end suddenly in a crisis that's been wrong in the making but comes up, that comes on immediately. The apathy ends suddenly in a time of crisis, and, you know, you don't always have the best decisions made at that time. You have a lot of people angry and outraged over things that they should have been concerned about for a long time but were not. You may not have the best leadership and position to address it. I mean, there's all kinds of issues with a lack of civic education, a lack of civic engagement, up to and including a greater sense of alienation from your fellow citizens. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that what we're looking at is a body politic that is not very healthy right now. It's not very healthy at all. And one of the things that makes it unhealthy is this addiction to hyperbole and fear as a means of motivating. And that's always been a part of politics, but it'll always be a part of politics. But it seeps through and it runs through our culture much more pervasively through social media and other means to where, you know, people may not follow politics very much. They may not know the issues very well, but they know enough to not like the person on the other side or they know enough to or believe they know enough to feel a real sense of alarm and fear. And, you know, and I think, again, that's not healthy. Part of it is going to be part of politics. Part of it is just inherent the tension of democratic politics. And as long as I've been alive, people have been worried about, you know, that it's all too simplistic and, and too vicious. But there has been something that has changed in the last decade or so about American views about politics and views about each other, and it has not changed for the good.
1: And, and you know, as, as we move toward wrapping up our conversation, let me throw out a, a predicate about why we're, we're seeing such division um and and that is that the media the mainstream media does play and, and and you know I'm a great purveyor of of user of uh mainstream media um but there is uh they do play a role they are east coast based uh they belong to this rich white class by and large whether they're progressive or conservative. Um, I don't think they really understand or reflect um, Main Street America. I mean, it's not like when you in Columbia, Tennessee, go uh, to the coffee shop um, or, or I do out here in California. We hear different things. Um, but the mainstream media has, at least in my observation, and you may disagree, kind of takes editorial policy to an extreme in terms of a uniformity of opinion among hosts, for example, on MSNBC or Fox or CNN. Uh, and, and that by doing that, and, and your piece about Elizabeth Warren is, uh, makes that point clearly, that, that their editorial bias often uh, leads their understanding of the facts in a news story and that that gets purveyed.
2: Right. Well, you know, one of the problems is, particularly in the, in the mainstream media, is you're in the hard news pages of the mainstream media, because the opinion pages do have some diversity in there. But in the, in the hard news pages, you're dealing with people with a remarkably uniform worldview, mm-hmm. a remarkably similar worldview. I mean, it's generally going to be progressive. It's generally going to be either secular or, or uh, not only nominally religious. And from that standpoint, that influences how they see the world. It influences what stories they believe are important, what stories are not important. It creates real problems. Yes, there are some reporters who are just out and out, you know, like, say, progressive activists. But a lot of the problem isn't so much that reporters are getting up in the morning and saying, what can I do for the Democratic Party today? It's that they're getting up in the morning and their entire worldview and all of their colleagues' worldview is sort of shaped by the same forces,
1: and, he, and they
2: see the world through the same prism. And that has a real consequence when it comes to trying to understand the world and when it comes to trying to report on the world and to report on our country. And so, you know, it leads to sort of some sort of, you know, the Elizabeth Warren's context It led to this sort of immediate reporting that, oh, Warren just proved, disproved Donald Trump. And so few people in those newsrooms to see for how other Americans would view that, that they kind of fell for the in line, hook, line, and sinker, until Twitter just, like, erupted in laughter. Then you began to see, oh, what's she doing? Oh, I see why that is. Oh, my goodness, I see the other side of this. Uh, But, you know, I, I think our newsrooms in our country would be very well served by doing aggressive recruitment from... Uh, not, mm-hmm. where you're not going on, you know, exclusively or quasi-exclusively from the Ivy leagues or the standard pipeline, but looking for talent in other places. Because I think it's very important that these newsrooms, at least, I'm not saying be exactly representative of the population. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that there should be, like a, affirmative action from the conservative point of view but at least more, somewhat more representative of the diversity of thought in the United States, because it's just going to make them better.
1: Yeah, it, it doesn't even have to be a conservative point of view. It has to be a curious, fact-based point of view.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that there are some that are not very curious. But I, I tell you, even having even a curious, fact-based reporter in a completely ideological uniform newsroom, is going to be not as good of a reporter as they would otherwise be if they were exposed to other Inf- ideas and other ways of seeing the world.
1: And other influences. I think you're absolutely right. right. And on that wonderful note, let's remind everybody that you're going to talk about how the First Amendment can actually keep us from further disintegration on November the 13th at the Liberty Forum of Silicon Valley. And I will, I don't always go to Liberty Forum, but I guarantee you I'll be there on the 13th. Wonderful. And David, thank you so much for your time. I really, I've i enjoyed this, and I think, I think it's a beneficial perspective for our listening audience two days before they go to the polls.
2: <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it very much.
1: Thank you. Have a good day. You too. And we'll be back in just a moment with some thoughts about some of the talking points you're hearing this week.
0: You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy.
1: And we're back with some thoughts about some of the current talking points. As David just pointed out, uh, this is an election motivated by fear, fear of the other. And so one of the things that um, has become quite contentious um, has been the so-called caravan or caravans that are coming north from um, what is called the Northern Triangle of Central America. And, you know, um, I don't know what the exact composition of that caravan is, but um, as I wrote way back early this summer, uh, these are desperate people. Uh, You don't make a trek like this, you don't leave your home, you don't become a refugee because you want to, but because you feel driven to. So um, that's one side of it. But there is another side that says, you know, we do have a, a, a lawful systematic way of admitting immigrants, and so you know there is a need for a rationalization of the so-called refugee process, um, and this is not new to the Trump administration. It, what's new about about it is the it is the virulent politicization of the effort to find a way to make to pacify Central America to to get rid of some of the gang violence to improve their economies, et cetera, so that people aren't forced to make these very dangerous journeys. that usually end anyway in their return. Um, but in the process of that, the president of the United States, um, in a news conference that, that MSNBC chose not to cover, uh, announced that he believes he can end birthright citizenship in the United States by executive order. Uh, And I will tell you that I am on Paul Ryan's side on that one. No, you can't. So one of the things that I thought was if you're over 40, you you may remember the concepts behind uh, birthright citizenship, the 14th Amendment, uh, the need to fix the Constitution at the end of the Civil War because... Uh, In the original language of the Constitution, which is a set of compromises, that's why we have direct election of of, uh, representatives, um, uh, a limited number of senators to make things equal between the large and small states and why the states, in fact, elect the president. That was all a series of compromises to make sure that everybody felt they were going to have equal protection. And so one of the things that happened early on was that in the language of the Constitution, only free white men, and I will say that again, free white men could become citizens of the United States, uh, and that slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of assigning population to a state— So the 14th Amendment goes further than the so-called Civil Rights Act of 1866, which gave civil rights to the liberated uh, slave population, largely in the South. But because Congress feared that a subsequent president might decide to revoke that or a subsequent Congress, they decided it needed to be a constitutional amendment. And that's the origin of the 14th Amendment. So this week there's been a whole lot of discussion about, you know, does it apply or does it not apply? And um there in, the interesting part is that the two most interesting pieces, one by John Yu, who is now at Berkeley and was uh a part of the uh White House consul's office in the in in Bush 43's first administration. And Judge Ho, who is uh, newly appointed to the Fifth um, Circuit, uh, the Fifth District um, uh, Court of Appeals, have written the two most interesting and scholarly pieces on "Yes, you can" and "No, you can't" by legislation by less than a uh, than a constitutional amendment. Change that. The only there are two decisions, two Supreme Court decisions. Or, Well, there's three. Uh, the Supreme Court has since, um, for the last 200 years, um, sided with the federal government in terms of making immigration law, although in the actual language of the Constitution, the states had more freedom, and that thus California's position is somewhat different. Um, but the the underlying theme of Supreme Court decisions has been to rely on the supremacy clause to give Congress a lot of power in making immigration law. So we then also have to look at a couple of other things to support that is is, um, two decisions, one called the Elkins decision and one called the Kim decision. The Elkins decision in 1884 said that because the 14th Amendment specifically excludes from citizenship Native Americans because the tribes were their sovereign entity, okay? And the union, the government made treaties with the tribes that put them on reservation. So Native Americans were not considered citizens under the 14th Amendment. That's going to blow your mind probably, but that's the truth. So um, in the Elkins decision, uh, the decision was if you are a a Native American and you have a child off the uh, the reservation, when that child reaches majority, that child is not a U.S. citizen by birthright because they're Native American and they're excluded. Then we have the Kim decision. There was an act of Congress around 1890 that excluded Chinese. It allowed Chinese to come to the United States and to establish permanent residency, legal immigration, right? But they couldn't become citizens. It's called the Chinese Exclusion Act. And the Kim decision um, affirms that the child of a legal resident, okay, is a birthright citizen. That was in 1898. There hasn't been a challenge to that act in the interim um, 120 years. So um, Congress may, by, if, you, if you assume that in 1924, Congress gave birth, gave citizenship to Native Americans and, and by that birthright citizenship to their children by act of Congress. Okay. We've had many subsequent decisions uh, that have defined legal immigration, who can, quotas, um, what are the requirements, et cetera, um, chain migration, et cetera. All of that is done by congressional action. So there is a predicate that says Congress, the president is impotent in this area. He is inst- instinctively correct. Jeb Bush agrees with him that anchor babies— as they are referred to are in fact a um, a um a a magnet for um extra legal or undocumented or whatever you want to call it immigration to the United States they are not the only reason they are not the only reason so congress is in fact not impotent and um Lindsey Graham has promised to introduce legislation um, that would restrict uh, birthright citizenship to legal immigrants of the United States, um, and and that's probably something that we should, in fact, debate uh, and decide. And if it, the law passes, then the Supreme Court is going to have to look at whether or not that meets the constitutional test under the 14th Amendment. And as I said, these two interesting scholars have said, one said, yes, um, Congress can do this. And the other one said, no, you need to have a constitutional amendment to over, to to redefine birthright under the, uh, beyond the 14th Amendment. So in either case, in either case, there is something that could be done 50,000 babies are born in the United States every year primarily to Russian and Chinese mothers. Russians in Florida, uh Chinese in California, who come to the United States pregnant trying to hide that pregnancy, enter the US claiming to be tourists, give birth to a child in the United States, sometimes claiming that they're indigent so that you and I have to pay for the proce- for the birth of that child. Uh, take the 2 weeks or a month to get that little blue passport and take that child back to Russia or China. And that ladies and gentlemen is a national security threat because that child as an adult can re-enter the US in the same line you and I who have American passports use. Doesn't need a visa, doesn't need any kind of pre- of of uh, background check, doesn't need anything. And when we look at the number of indictments Um, for espionage. Currently, um, that, in my view, is a national security risk. And that would be a very small bipartisan way to begin to test whether Congress has any authority under the 14th Amendment. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk a little bit about no labels and a couple of closing thoughts.
0: Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer.
1: You'll remember in my conversation with David French, we talked about the 50% of voters who are independent. Well, there is an organization for people who have an independent political mind. And by the way, you can be a member if you're a Republican or a Democrat, too. It's called No Labels. Website is nolabels.org has a Facebook page that is a fabulous place to go um, for an ongoing um, discussion, a very lively discussion about ways in which we could improve uh, our political process to end the gridlock in Congress. Congress is the most powerful entity under the Constitution, and No Labels, of which I'm a proud member, um, is all about ending the gridlock both through the Problem Solver Caucus, which includes both Democrats and Republicans willing to come together and, 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 you know, break bread together and talk about the issues and try to find reasonable compromises in the middle. Um, and and what, what we need is what no labels wants, and that's a 21st gover- century government that is better, quicker, cheaper, smarter and recognizes that debt bomb ain't going to go away unless we compromise and make it go away. So they have a proposal that all of us um, should kind of shake our heads and say, yes, that's a good idea. And that proposal is that the Speaker of the House not be elected by the majority of the majority party, but be elected by a majority of the House plus five. In other words, at least five members of the minority party are going to have to sign on to that person being Speaker. Remember that the Speaker of the House is, the, is number three in line to be President of the United States. That person should be above party politics. That person also sets the legislative calendar, makes him, really, him or her really powerful and we and they and has a huge role in determining who gets committee assignments and who gets to chair those committees and those chairmen are very powerful and so i urge you to go to nolabels.org or go to facebook and do a search on no labels and it will bring you the page like the page get involved learn more about how we can end gridlock in congress by a different approach to electing a speaker. And in the minute we have left, let me remind you that you can meet David French at the Liberty Forum in Mountain View on Tuesday, November the 13th, where his topic will be the, the threat of intolerance, how the First Amendment can keep the United States from disintegrating. Tickets and information are available at liberty Dash. Forum.us. and online registration ends on November the 9th. If you want to know more about some of the topics we've discussed today or listen to a podcast of this program, go to reimagineamerica.org. If you want to know more about birthright citizenship, do a search on birthright on the site, and you'll find a couple of blogs on the subject that take you um, through um, a lot more detail. Um, I always know what interests me in the news But I'm really interested in what interests you. So drop me a line at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org. And I try to respond to as many of those listener comments as I can. So um, you can also reach me at reimagine.org. We've got a new feature on the site called The Thought of the Day. Uh, You can also find me at reimagine-america on Facebook or at Joyce Cordy, all small letters, all one word, on Twitter. The podcast will be posted to the Reimagine America radio hour, uh, probably this afternoon, but certainly by tomorrow. Reimagine America is independent and nonprofit. If you appreciate our independent, results-oriented, post-political voice, please consider making a donation at reimagineamerica.org. And until next week, remember to vote. And we'll all be sitting there Tuesday night waiting to see how America will change.
0: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.